We continue our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Matthew, and this morning we are in Matthew chapter 24. We will look primarily at verses 4 through 8 this morning. It's a wonderful joy as a pastor to preach the Word of God, and we are commanded to preach the whole counsel of God. Therefore, even the prophetic literature, when we come to it, we will preach it, even though some of the things of which we speak, we will not necessarily experience. Other things we will, some we won't. But certainly when we study prophecy, many of the rich theological themes of who our God is begins to really find expression. For example, as we look at prophecy, we see how that God providentially rules over all of his kingdom, all of his world, even the kingdoms of men. And he will accomplish all that he has decreed. All of his sovereign purposes will be accomplished regarding, regardless of any of the opposition that he may find on the world today, whether it be human or demonic. And so we come to Christ's greatest prophetic discourse once again. And this is actually the second part that we began last week. Remember now, Jesus has pronounced judgment upon Israel, upon the temple. And now the disciples are confused. Their messianic hopes are somewhat being dashed, but not completely. They don't really know what's going on. Certainly their beloved temple is doomed, according to what Jesus has said. And they ask him in verse 3, of Matthew 24, tell us, when will all these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And as they sat upon the Mount of Olives, Jesus gave the longest answer to any question posed to him in the New Testament. And we must remember now the disciples are thinking in their mind that all of the mysterious events that that are now being revealed to them by the Lord Jesus will come in some uh, short and quick succession, culminating in the promised messianic kingdom. They had no idea that Jesus would soon ascend into heaven and that there would be a church age that would intervene before his ultimate parousia, his ultimate appearing So beginning in verse 4, Jesus begins to answer their questions in reverse order. He begins by addressing the signs of his coming. And in verses 4 through 14, he describes six very specific signs called birth pangs that will occur just prior to his appearing. I believe these to be a sequence of divine judgments analogous to a woman entering into labor, events that will increase in severity and rapidity until the messianic kingdom is birthed. These, by the way, are far more than just natural disasters. These are divine judgments. In fact, the concept of birth pains in Hebrew is a concept that we see in the Old Testament that always is found in association with and symbolizes terrible calamities that accompany the day of the Lord. You see that in Isaiah 21 and verse 3, 
26, verses 17 through 18, Isaiah 66, verse 7, Jeremiah 4:31, and Micah 4:10. And what are these six signs? Well, again, by way of review, they are number one, false messiahs in verses four and five. Number two, we're going to learn of nations at war in verses six through the first part of verse seven. The second part of verse seven and eight speak thirdly of natural disasters of epic proportions. Fourthly, in verse nine, we will read of persecution of tribulation saints. Fifthly, in verses 10 through 13, we will read of the defection of and betrayal by false believers. And then sixthly, we will read of mass evangelism. Now, before we look at some of these signs this morning, I want to spend a few moments and make a bit of a case why I believe that all of these signs are future, that they are signs that did not occur in 70 A.D. as many people that I would love and respect believe have occurred. Let me give you nine reasons, and these are relevant just with the sign gifts. As you look at Matthew 24 and other texts, I believe there's many other reasons, but but nine reasons, and rather briefly, and some of this is by way of review, why I believe these signs that Jesus is talking about is something way beyond what occurred in A.D. 70 when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. First of all, these six signs are merely the beginning of birth pains, verse 8 says. And they're therefore going to get far more severe. They're going to increase with frequency. And birth pains do not occur at conception, as I said last week. They don't occur during pregnancy. They occur just prior to birth. And it makes no sense to me to apply this to the destruction of Jerusalem an event that occurred at the very beginning of the church age. And again, Paul reminds us that Christ will return in judgment as a thief in the night. He will come without warning. He will come suddenly. He will come unexpectedly. And when he speaks of this, he uses the same figure that Jesus does, that of birth pangs. And he does this in 1 Thessalonians 5. In verses 1 through 3, there he says, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. And dear friends, that text and that whole concept simply does not fit the facts, the historical facts of A.D. 70. Another reason why I believe all of this is future is that in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, we find that these texts parallel John's vision recorded in the book of Revelation, which was written in the last decade of the first century, 94 to about 96 A.D., 30 years after the fall of Jerusalem, near the end of Emperor Domitian's reign. We have, for example, a documented declaration of one of the early church fathers, Arrhenius, who lived in A.D. 120 to 202, and he said that John's revelation was written, quote, toward the end of Domitian's reign. In fact, that later date of the book of Revelation is affirmed by other church fathers. You could read it in Clement of Alexandria's writings of Origen, Victorinus, who wrote one of the earliest commentaries on Revelation, Eusebius and Jerome. So for that reason as well, I believe, since these are parallel accounts found in what Jesus is saying as well as in 
the book of Revelation, that since Revelation was written way beyond A.D. 70, that what Jesus is saying cannot refer to A.D. 70. A third reason, since these events clearly parallel the prophecies of Daniel's 70th week, and this may be something that many of you are unfamiliar with. I'm not going to take time to go into all of it now. We will at a later date. But since these events parallel the prophecies of Daniel's 70th week, you read about that in Daniel 9.27 in particular, a period that is distinctly Jewish in its context, relating to God's uh, covenants with with Israel and his judgments upon them. Uh, Since that is the case, this cannot be describing anything in the church age. In fact, when Israel enters into the time of Jacob's trouble, as, as uh, Jeremiah calls it in Jeremiah 30 and verse 7, we read of a, a period of unprecedented oppression for Israel. The context describes her final restoration just before Messiah returns. And all of that, of course, is described in great detail in, in the book of Revelation as well. And Jesus indicates in Matthew 24 as well as in Matthew 13 that the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy is to be the template of the chronological sequence of the beginning of birth pains that Jesus is talking about, all of which, of course, correlate with the seal judgments in Revelation chapter 5 and 6. The first four seal judgments in the book of Revelation fit within the first half of Daniel's 70th week prophecy and climaxes in the temple's desecration, the abomination of desolation. And we read about that as well in Matthew 24, 15 and Mark 13, 14. All of that, the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week. And then that fifth seal in John's vision in Revelation stretches from the first into the second half. That time called the Great Tribulation, according to Revelation 7, 14. It lasts three and a half years, according to Revelation 11, 2, 12, 6 and 13, 5. And then you have the sixth And the seventh seals that take place during the Great Tribulation, in fact, the the seventh seal judgment really contains the seven trumpet judgments and the seventh trumpet judgment contains the seven bowl judgments. At a later time, we will get into this in more detail. But the point is, this is really a time that that is articulated in the context of Daniel's 70th week relating to the Jewish people, to the nation of Israel, not to the church. By the way, that whole period of time, some have rightly said, have really a terrestrial focus. But these horrific catastrophes that are described in the prophetic literature intensify in this birthing process. We see this in Matthew 24, verses 16 through 26 that correlate with Revelation 7 through 19. And this moves from a terrestrial focus to a celestial focus, ultimately climaxing in the Messiah's return to earth in judgment. And again, all of that fits into the last half of Daniel's 70th week, concluding with the destruction of the one who desecrates the temple, the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, according to Daniel 9.26. Now, friends... All of these amazing prophecies, again, of the 
of Jesus and of of the book of Revelation and in the Old Testament and so on pertain to a future time of tribulation, primarily with respect to the people who were alive during that time, especially the Jews. And in my humble opinion, it's only a tortured interpretation of these texts that can make these somehow fit into the historical facts of A.D. 70. I simply don't see it. A fourth reason why I believe that all of these things apply to a time yet future beyond A.D. 70 is simply because nothing compares to the scope and to the severity of these staggering events. Not to mention the sequence of them. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 21, there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. And unless unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. That cannot be referring to something that happened in A.D. 70. For even though that was a horrendous time, there have been times that have been far worse than that. And the severity and scope, not to mention the sequence of the prophecies yet to come, is far greater than anything we could even imagine that has occurred thus far. A fifth reason why I believe that this is beyond A.D. 70 is that Jesus describes wars between numerous nations and numerous kingdoms, not one single nation, i.e. Rome, against a captive Israeli people. It's far beyond that. A sixth reason is that in verse 7, Jesus describes how that there will be in various places famines and earthquakes. That simply does not fit the historical facts of A.D. 70. A seventh reason is that Jesus describes a time in which there will be many who will claim to be a Messiah, be the Messiah. Dear friends, there is no historical evidence of anything like that even remotely happening until about A.D. 135 when a man by the name of Simon Bar Kokhba claimed to be the Messiah. An eighth reason why I believe that what Jesus is predicting is beyond A.D. 70 is that in Matthew 24, verses 13 through 14, Jesus speaks of believers enduring the birth pains to the end. Well, obviously, that could not have referred to the disciples. They did not live to the end of the age. And it can't refer to believers because the believers are going to be raptured before the end of the age, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.17. So these events can only apply to those who come to faith in Christ during the tribulation, whose faith is therefore proven by their endurance to the end. And then a ninth reason is that in verse 14, Jesus describes a time of global evangelism. And we see this also in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 7. A time where, in a miraculous way, even an angel preaches the gospel, John tells us, to every tribe and and nation and tongue and people. And again, nothing like that happened in A.D. 70. Folks, if I can once again remind you, be very careful. Don't replace Israel with the church. Be very careful with that. One of the leading proponents of the preterist position, David Chilton, 
teaches that, quote, ethnic Israel was excommunicated for its apostasy and will never again be God's kingdom, end quote. I simply do not see that in Scripture. Dear friends, if Israel's restoration and future salvation which is clearly described in Romans 11:25 through 27. If all of that has been abrogated, then God must also renege on his promise to bless the world through them, which you find in Romans 11:12, in fulfillment to the Abrahamic covenant that we see in Genesis 12:3. So you have a whole lot of problems when you start saying that God is finished with Israel. Beloved, I believe that we must maintain a distinction between Israel and the church. God's promises to Israel are not somehow being fulfilled in a spiritual way to to the church. Because somehow we are more deserving. That would violate certainly the principles of sovereign grace. And certainly that view, in my mind, is not consistent with a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. Yet, many people say that God has no future for Israel. There's no program for Israel. But may I remind you that according to 1 Samuel 12:22, God spoke through Samuel and here's what he said. The Lord will not forsake his people for his name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. And indeed, God redeemed his people even out of Egypt redeemed them for himself. And in light of that, David wrote in 2 Samuel 7:24, you have made your people Israel your very own people forever. Forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. And Jeremiah reminds us in Jeremiah 30 and verse 11, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. For I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you, only I will not destroy you completely. But I will chasten you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. Well, enough of that reasoning. There will be much more in days to come as we look at texts beyond these six signs. But let's look at these six signs that Jesus gives us. We won't be able to examine them all this morning, but we'll be able to look at a few. The first one we find in verses 4 and 5, but before we even look at it, let let me just read so you get the whole flow here as Jesus answers the second half of their question in verse 3. Beginning in verse 4, he says, And Jesus answers and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. 
And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations. And then the end shall come. The first sign in verses four and five, false messiahs. A time of great deception leading ultimately to the worship of the ultimate false messiah, the Antichrist. Jesus answers, says to them, see to it. In the original language, it means keep your eyes wide open. Speaking to those who will live in that day, that generation of that day. Keep your eyes wide open. Be vigilant. Beware. Of what? Well, that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. Well, certainly there have been false messiahs all throughout history. There were false messiahs before Jesus' time and even after his time. But history records a bit of a gradual increase, as I have seen it. But nothing like the number that will occur, that will rise up before Jesus comes. And certainly the influence that the false messiahs will have before Jesus comes will be far greater than anything that we've seen today. Now, again, we've seen cultic personalities in the past. We've seen men like Karl Marx and Adolf Hitler. I think of the self-proclaimed Messiah in our recent memory. Remember Jim Jones back in 1978, how he convinced 913 followers to commit suicide at the People's Temple in Jonestown, Guyana. Remember that? They were told to drink punch laced with cyanide, and they did it. Amazing thing. I remember in even more recent history, David Koresh. Remember him with the Branch Davidians? Claimed to be God incarnate. And in 1993, you may remember the scene on television, uh, there was a federal raid upon their compound there in Texas and 74 people died in that raid. And even in 1997, there was the homosexual who claimed to be Jesus, son of God, by the name of Marshall Applewhite. Remember him? He had 39 followers in uh, the movement he called Heaven's Gate. And they drank the uh, phenobarbital mixed with vodka, a nice little cocktail, and uh, it killed them. They committed mass suicide. Uh, Thirty-nine of them did. Remember, they believed that there was a spacecraft that was going to come and, and take them to a higher plane. And dear friends, even today, false teachers, a little bit different than false messiahs, but certainly false teachers dominate the religious landscape. Not all of them claim to be the Messiah, but they certainly have a God complex. And the gullibility of people today is utterly pandemic. I think of young men that will blow themselves up because they believe somehow Allah wants them to do so. I think of the thousands of charlatans that promise health and wealth to people that are, are clamoring after them, people that clamor after every imaginal, imagine, imaginable evangelical fad that comes around. You see that with what the... 
prayer of Jabez, now the purpose-driven life, and that will begin to fizzle here before long and there will be another one. On and on it goes. Dear friends, people even today are confused. They're, they're, they're scared. They're desperate. And they're ignorant. Even a lot of people with college educations, even seminary educations, they're ignorant of what the Scriptures really teach. And imagine how vulnerable people are to the, to the religious predators that are out there today. And you know, I was thinking, imagine what it'll be like when the church is raptured, when, when the church is translated, snatched away. When the moral and spiritual influence of the body of Christ is gone, when there's no more salt, there's no more light, only decay and darkness, when there's nothing left to, to restrain immorality and, and, and corruption, when the ACLU and the leftist liberals and, and Hollywood can have their way without opposition, when the homosexuals can rule the day, dear friends, it will be a time of unbridled wickedness and it will spread like a toxic waste, the toxic waste of a nuclear fallout. And when that happens, people will live in utter horror It'll be like a horror movie and the suffering will be unbearable as we will see as we look at the prophetic literature and all of the events will cause people to cry out according to Revelation 616, cry out for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of the lamb. That's how bad it'll get. Moreover, imagine how much worse it will be when the restraining power of the Holy Spirit is taken away, as we read in 2 Thessalonians 2. Taken away means literally that he steps aside. In that text, beginning in verse 7, through the first part of verse 8, 2 Thessalonians 2, we read, The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Or again, steps aside. And then the lawless one will be revealed. And indeed, you must understand that, that today the spirit of lawlessness is, is rampant in our world. But it is still a mystery. It hasn't been fully revealed and it won't be until the Antichrist, who is the embodiment of lawlessness, is revealed in the midpoint of the tribulation and reigns for 42 months, according to Daniel 7.25 and Revelation 13.5. Dear friends, the world's institutions, even today, are gradually disintegrating. You look at the institution of marriage, what's happening to it. You look at the institution of the family. Look at our systems. Look at our educational system, our, our, our health care system, even our governments. And dear friends, eventually they're all going to collapse. And when all of that happens, this place will be an unbearable place to live. You will see moral and social anarchy. And not only will the institutions disintegrate, but as we read the prophetic literature, the whole planet begins to disintegrate. I mean, this will be an environmentalist's worst nightmare. Because as you look at the prophetic literature, you will see there will be earthquakes, famines, pestilence, war, cosmic disturbances. The vegetation is going to be burned up. A third of the creatures of the salt water will be destroyed. A third of the ships, the fresh waters will be made bitter. And on and on it goes. Remember the lawlessness that we saw at the end of Katrina? Think of that 
on a global scale. And, you know, whenever you find desperate people, you will find opportunistic predators to prey upon them, right? This is always the, the, the very heart of cults. They look for desperate people, offering them something that they could never deliver, also that they can gain a following. This will be the mindset of the false messiahs in the day when people are desperate beyond anything that we have ever imagined. And please understand, the removal of the church combined with the escalating disasters will predispose people to follow every imaginable diabolical cult and leader. And we even see that again today. People are so prone to that. And in their desperation and in their spiritual blindness, they will ultimately bow to the quintessential deceiver, the Antichrist himself, Satan's Messiah. This is the one that Daniel describes in Daniel 8, beginning in verse 23, as, quote, insolent and skilled in intrigue. Let me repeat that. He will be insolent and skilled in intrigue. And his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And then in Daniel 11:36 we read more. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. In fact, the Apostle Paul describes him in 2 Thessalonians 2:3 as the man of lawlessness. And the son of destruction. And then in Revelation 11 and in Revelation 13, he is described as the beast. Well, as we continue to look at the signs, not only do we see Jesus speaking of the danger of deceptive false messiahs, but secondly, nations at war, verses 6 through the first part of verse 7. Look at that text. He says, and you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. Now, let me stop for a second. The grammar in the original language would indicate that this is referring to people that are constantly hearing of actual wars and impending wars. Well, it's not too different than what we have today, but it's going to get much worse. And he goes on to say, see that you are not frightened for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. The telos. The word is very important here. It's not the end. In other words, that, that's not going to be the very end, Jesus is saying. The ultimate end of the age when all conflicts will cease. There's going to be more to come. Again, remember, this is only the beginning of birth pangs. Nations at war. He goes on to say in verse 7, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. Now, again, we already see the stage set for escalating violence and nations at war in our day. If you listen to the news at all, you realize very quickly that most of the world hates the United States of America and it's getting worse. In fact, the pundits and politicians are frequently expressing their concern, their growing fear of Russia and China and North Korea and the Arab Islamic nations, and even South America now. 
In fact, imperialistic Russia today is a wounded bear, but dear friends, it is gaining strength. Recently, Russia canceled Syria's $10 billion debt in a formal declaration, becoming their ally. And when that happened, you may remember that Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon protested to Moscow when they agreed to sell advanced missiles to Syria. And of course, all of his protests fell on deaf ears. Russia continues to assist Iran in its development of its nuclear program. By the way, is it any wonder that when the Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas when he came into power, the first thing that he did was what? He went to Moscow to establish that relationship. He needs an, an ally to annihilate Israel. If we look at the prophetic literature, we look at, for example, Ezekiel chapter 38. And there you can read a very detailed description of a coalition of nations that will come upon Jerusalem at the end of the tribulation. I believe it to be synonymous with that battle of Armageddon. And when you read those nations, you will see clearly it speaks of Russia along with, with numerous other Muslim nations that even are within that old Soviet Union constellation of nations, but also nations including Iran, Libya, Egypt, Ethiopia, Armenia, and even Turkey. Wars and rumors of wars. Nations rising against nations. Kingdoms against kingdoms. And again, folks, even as we look at our current political and moral climate in the world today, especially in Russia, we see that these scenarios seem almost inevitable. And even people that do not believe the prophetic literature would agree that things are moving towards a very, very dangerous time. In the magazine, Israel, My Glory, one that I would encourage you all to get and to read, there is a, an article called Emerging Shadows of the Hammer and Sickle by Elwood McQuaid. Here's what he had to say, quote, On January 13, 2005, 20 members of Russia's Duma, lower, which is the lower house of parliament, sent a letter to the prosecutor general asking him to investigate their allegations and, if confirmed, to initiate proceedings prohibiting all religious and ethnic Jewish organizations in Russia, branding them as, quote, extremists. He went on to say that the evangelical Christians in Russia and some of the Commonwealth states are also feeling the heat. It is no secret that the Russian Orthodox hierarchy is in a huff over the giant inroads Bible-believing Christians are making among a spiritually emaciated people long stifled by the sterile formalism of the Orthodox system. Consequently, the Russian Orthodox have forged alliances with some of Russia's most radical political groups, branding evangelicals as cultists who prey upon unsuspecting citizens. Well, again, I just give you that as another example, dear friends. I believe it's easy to see that there are numerous powder kegs around the world ready to explode. The world is inexorably moving toward unprecedented conflict, not towards peace. By the way, we learn more about this in the parallel accounts in the book of Revelation. For example, 
In Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, we read how God the Father hands Jesus Christ, the the Son, a scroll, which would be really uh, the imagery of of the title deed to the universe. And and it's sealed seven times, which, by the way, was customary for titles such as that and even in the Roman laws of that day. And beginning in chapter 6 of Revelation, we read how Christ begins to unroll the scroll with his seven seals, each of which represent a specific divine judgment that will be sequentially discharged upon the earth. And in Daniel's prophecy, we even get further insight into the conflicts of that coming day, that future day. In Daniel 9.27, for example, we read how Israel is one day going to make a covenant with the Antichrist, believing his lies, believing the phony peace that the world is beginning to experience at some level, deceived by his promises to protect them. And in Daniel 7, verse 24, we read how the Antichrist in that day will rule a massive kingdom that basically compromises the old Roman Empire. It's really a fascinating prophetic passage. A Western confederacy of a unified Europe. In fact, Daniel describes that as a ten-nation empire. Now, I don't know for sure. I, I, I want to be careful whenever we get beyond what the text says. But this very well could refer to the current European common, mar- common market. We don't know for sure, but it could be. But then as you go on to read Daniel's prophecies, in Daniel chapter 11, verse 40, we see once again how that both the near and future prophecies are juxtaposed together, where you see historical facts of both being presented. The near prophecies, by the way, in Daniel 11 were fulfilled in the Persian kingdom and the reign of Greece through Antiochus Epiphanes. And then the future prophecies move us way on beyond and move us all the way to the time of the Antichrist. And in light of that, here's what Daniel says about that time, that future day. At the end of time, Daniel 11:40 The king of the south will collide with the antichrist and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots. By the way, this is likely a Russian and Arab alliance. He goes on to say that they will uh, storm against him with chariots, with horsemen and with many ships and he will enter countries, overflow them and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand. Edom Moab and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. So in other words, as we read this, evidently there is a temporary defeat of these nations. But we, we will see that the northern and the eastern forces begin to regroup and they, they rekindle the, the wrath of the Antichrist and he attacks them and he's going to be defeated. So in Daniel 11, verse 44, we read some more of this. It says, but rumors from the east. Let me stop there for a second. It's interesting that in Revelation 9, verses 14 through 16, 
there is a description of an eastern army of, of, of 200 million that will come and destroy one third of the remaining inhabitants of the earth. And it's interesting to think that even now there is an army greater than that, over 200 million in the east, the army of China. But Daniel describes that there will be rumors from the east that will come and also from the north. Rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, referring to the Antichrist. And he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. And he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. What's that? Well, between the Mediterranean and the Dead Seas and Mount Zion. They're in the land of Israel. And yet the text goes on to say, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Again, Daniel 9, 11, I mean, Daniel 11, verses 43 through 44 through 45. By the way, we see this described as well in Matthew, I'm sorry, in Revelation chapter 19, verses 19 through 21 in the battle of of Armageddon, that pinnacle of the day of the Lord when Antichrist is defeated and the Lord Jesus Christ comes with his saints and executes all of the kings of the earth and their armies. So my point in in reminding you of these other great prophecies, dear friends, is to say that there is a day that is coming when there will be conflict that is beyond anything we could ever conceive. Russia to the north, confederated Europe to the west, Africa to the south, Asia to the east. All of them converge upon the tiny little land of Israel. And you tell me that somehow God is finished with those people. The most fought over and thought on piece of real estate in the world. An amazing thought. It's all and they're all going to be destroyed. By the way, Zechariah give you another prophecy in Zechariah 14, beginning in verse two, we read the Lord will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. By the way, as I read this, try to imagine all of this fitting into what happened in A.D. 70. The Lord will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city will be captured. The houses plundered, the women ravished and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. Now, folks, that's a wonderful, glorious hope. Of a coming day, but none of that happened in A.D. 70. Well, bottom line, conflicts will only increase in severity and in scope just before the Lord comes again his second time in power and great glory. And no one, regardless of where they live, will be exempt from these worldwide conflicts. Now, back to Matthew 24 in verse six. Isn't it interesting there in the middle of the verse, he says, see that you are not frightened for these things must take place. Aren't those wonderful words of encouragement for those people living in that day? Those tribulation saints? He's saying, yes, these things are going to happen, but don't lose hope here. Don't think that I'm I'm no longer on my throne. I'm still a sovereign God. I am in control. I'll be there soon. So Jesus speaks not only of false messiahs and nations at war, but look at the next birth pain. That of natural disasters of epic proportions. 
at the end of verse seven through verse eight. He says, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now, again, in order to get more detail of this, we can go to Revelation chapter six. And in verse eight, we read how Christ will break the fourth seal of the scroll. And here's what we read that parallels what Jesus is saying here in Matthew seven and eight. And I looked and behold, an ashen horse and he who sat on it had the name death and Hades was following with him. And authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. My, this is a macabre scene, a horrifying scene. Again, something beyond anything I can conceive. And in the imagery of coming judgment, we read of this ashen horse, ashen in the original language is chloros. We get our word chloroform from that or chlorine. But it refers to a pale color, a yellowish green color. This is the color of sickness. This is the color of a corpse, a corpse that is rotting. It is also, by the way, the color that is used to describe the the, shall we say, blanched appearance of a person who has been struck with paralyzing fear. I've seen that before. Now, here's what's going on. Obviously, global war will lead to famine, especially if there is nuclear war. And John here sees Hades, or in other words, the grave, following after this ashen horse. It's this ashen horse Mounted by death. And he sees the sword, the famine and pestilence. By the way, whenever you see those, I shouldn't say whenever, but many times when you see those in the Old Testament, they're in the same context. And naturally, all of this will lead to death. Pestilence in the original language, thanatos, it can be uh, translated death. But also, it is used to describe and encompass Events far beyond just that of death. It's used to describe natural disasters, even things like famines and earthquakes that Jesus has predicted. And obviously many diseases that will inevitably accompany such cataclysmic events. Whenever we have seen great wars and many corpses from whatever has happened, whether it be a famine or a war, One of the greatest killers, by by the way, this is one of their concerns with the tsunami. One of the greatest killers is typhus. Been one of the greatest killers throughout history. It's interesting to note as well that there were more casualties in the Civil War due to disease than from battle. So this will be a time of great pestilence. It's interesting too, that the great influenza epidemic of 1918 and 1919 killed 30 million people. So wherever there's corpses and famine and the wide scale natural disasters and disease described here, especially under the concept of pestilence, you are also going to have something else. Wild beasts. Now, it's interesting 
tried to do a lot of research on this term, therion, in the original language, wild beast. It can literally refer to, it literally means an animal living wild. And it can refer to many kinds of, of wild animals, carnivores. And maybe here it means, you know, there will be carnivores that are starving for a meal. We don't know for sure. But it can also be found in other Greek literature to refer to birds and even insects. Now, I don't want to push this a lot. Again, I don't want to get into sensationalizing things. But it is, I think, a tenable hypothesis to assume that this can mean more than just wild animals like wolves or coyotes or whatever. For example, imagine if it had some reference to different types of insects. Just think of the disease that is borne by mosquitoes. The Mayo Clinic estimates that malaria is responsible for killing 2.7 million people every year. And it could refer to some kind of birds. And even now, we're, we have a great fear of a bird flu epidemic. And again, I don't know. I don't want to push this. But imagine, dear friends, a time when hospitals are probably pretty much in shambles. We really have no more resources to supply clinics and physicians with, with the, the needed drugs. All of that's interrupted or maybe cut off completely. It's going to be a horrific time for the people of that day. But the wild animals, I think, could refer especially to one little rodent that we're all familiar with, and that's the rat. Because we know that rats thrive in highly populated areas and they are notorious down through history for spreading disease. In fact, in the 14th century, rats were responsible for the spread of the bubonic plague. Remember that? And it wiped out one fourth and some say as much as one third of all of Europe. Remember, it was called the Black Death. Well, again, we don't know all of the specifics But we do know that it will be a horrible time, an inconceivable time. And friends, think of this now. This is just the fourth seal in Revelation 8 and the third birth pang of Jesus' prophecy in Matthew 24. Now think of this. By the time the Lamb breaks all of the seals, when the Lord breaks them all, and all of the trumpet and all of the bowl judgments have been poured out upon the earth, Dear friends, the planet as we know it today will cease to exist. And those who refuse to repent will be in such unspeakable torment that they will, according to Revelation 9, verse 5, seek death and will not find it. And they will long to die and death flees from them. In fact, in Revelation 16, verse 10, God tells us that these people will gnaw their tongues because of pain. Well, again, nothing of this severity and scope, not to mention sequence, happened at the fall of Jerusalem. And to think, Jesus says in verse 8 here of Matthew 24, all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Beloved, may we all rejoice this morning in the comforting promise that, that Paul gave the Thessalonian believers in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-9. When he said, let us who are of the day be sober, 
putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, next week we will pick it up here, but I want to close this morning. I want to just remind you again that we serve a holy God. We serve a sovereign God who is merciful and he is gracious, but he will not let sin go unpunished. And we can rejoice that all that he has promised will come to fruition. And when I was thinking of this, my mind went to a hymn. We haven't sung this in a long time, and I'm not suggesting we do it now, Brian or Toby. But it's an old Charles Wesley hymn. I love his old hymns, written in 1758. The title of the hymn is, Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending. By the way, this is what singing great hymns should do. When you're reading the Word of God... It should stimulate your heart to think of the great hymns of the faith. And likewise, when you're singing the great hymns of the faith, it should help reinforce the eternal truths that we find in the infallible record of the Word of God. That's why hymns are so important. But as I was pouring myself into these amazing prophecies and rejoicing in the sovereign God that I love and serve, This hymn came to mind, and I couldn't remember all of the words, but I found it. Here's what he says. Lo, he comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending swell the triumph of his train. Alleluia, alleluia, God appears on earth to reign. Every eye shall now behold him, robed in dreadful majesty. Those who set it not and sold him, pierced and nailed him to the tree. Deeply wailing, deeply wailing, shall the true Messiah see. And then the last verse. Yea, amen, let us adore thee, high on thine eternal throne. Savior, take the power and glory. Claim the kingdom for thine own. Oh, come quickly, oh, come quickly. Hallelujah, come, Lord, come. Let's pray together. Father, again, we are humbled at the glory and the majesty of your name. And we see that even in your wrath, you are glorified as a holy God. But we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that your wrath has been appeased completely by the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may the eternal truths that we have read and thought about this morning motivate us to serve you. For the day is short, we believe. Lord, we would love to see many, many souls come to Christ. We all have burdens for friends and loved ones. Lord, we pray that you will use us in a mighty way. And Lord, may all of the things that we read about with respect to your coming again, especially when we think of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ to snatch us away into yourself. Lord, I pray that indeed that will be a purifying and a sanctifying hope It will cause us to live lives of obedience and lives of service because, Lord, indeed, there is nothing that matters in this life save serving you. 
Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. For it's in Your name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.